0: The entire town had gathered for uh, the trial at the courthouse. The plaintiff's attorney called his first witness, an elderly woman, to the stand. He approached her after all the, you know, formalities and said, "Uh, Mrs. Jones, do you know me? She responded, why, yes, I do know you, Mr. Williams. I've known you since you were a young boy. And frankly, you've been a big disappointment to me. You lie, you cheat on your wife, you manipulate people, and talk about them behind their backs. You think you're a rising big shot, but you haven't the brains to realize you'll never amount to more than a two-bit pusher, paper pusher. Yeah, I know you. The lawyer obviously uh, stunned by this, uh, not knowing what else to do. He pointed across the room and he said, Mrs. Jones, do you know the defense attorney? She said, why, yes, of course. I've known Mr. Bradley since he was a youngster, too. I used to babysit him. And he, too, has been a real disappointment. He's lazy. He has a drinking problem. The man can't build a normal relationship with anybody. And his law practice is, quite frankly, one of the worst in the state. Yeah, I know him. Well, at this point, as you would imagine, the judge, uh, the the courtroom was all uh, a (laughs) flutter. And uh, the, the judge wrapped the courtroom to silence and called both counselors to approach. In a very quiet voice, he said with a menace, I will hold you both in contempt of court if you ask her if she knows me. (laughs) Nobody, nobody likes to have their lives laid bare for all to see. Uh, We definitely like to keep our dirty laundry in the closet outside the view of everyone else. And uh, throughout history, human beings have learned to be masters of manipulation when it comes to concealing our innermost secrets. Uh, we've gotten so good at it, in fact, sometimes we even fool ourselves. And it's easy to look at the world around you, the people around you, and find yourself discouraged, disappointed, disillusioned at the world around you. And so today as we step back into the time of Jesus, we find some of God's people wondering some of this, those same things. We find a group of people Longing for God's promises to be fulfilled. For relief from their suffering under the hand of Roman rule. For uh, the, the Messiah to come to rise up against Rome and to overtake it. And then we find another group who thinks they have it all figured out. And so as we approach Luke 18, we get the sense that Jesus is finding himself in this a common point of conversation that do- dominates religious circles even today. Um, because in just the previous chapter, we're going to be in Luke 18, but in Luke 17, religious leaders were asking, though I doubt their sincerity because they thought they had it all figured out. He sa- they say to him, well, Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? And Jesus warns them, that the king- kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, well, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God... Will be in your midst, and yet here we are, two thousand years later, with thousands and thousands of pages and books and movies and Bible studies seeking just to do that same thing. So it, it kind of you kind of get the sense that in Luke 17, the religious leaders aren't really tracking, uh, the people aren't tracking with Jesus, and so from Luke 17 verses 21 and following, Jesus tries to paint a picture for them. Uh, The picture I see as I read it are these people sitting before Jesus looking at him totally confused, Um, as I think I would have been as well, because what Jesus was describing was something completely different than what was expected. And that's the scene we find ourselves in in Luke 18. I've had this discussion And then Luke says in Luke 18, verse 1, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town that kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But he finally said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord says, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him all day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you that he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And I don't know. I don't know if Luke just wanted to be really like super clear or that he was concerned that his readers might be too dense to understand. So he just starts right off with the point of the parable. Uh, before Jesus, before he even tells what Jesus was going to say, uh, he just starts off. Then Jesus told a parable. Uh, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Always pray and not give up. That's a good Christian thing to think and to say, but hear me out. Resist the temptation to read something into that without remembering the context of where it's placed. People were all wondering, when is God going to settle the score? When will there be justice for us, this people who have been scattered, who have been oppressed? Uh, when, is, when is the Messiah going to come and win for us? So Jesus tells them about a nameless, callous, power player judge who didn't seem to care about anything or anyone and a nameless, pitiful and powerless widow who needed justice because she needed someone to speak on her behalf. Eventually the judge just gives in so she'll shut up, right? Um, Not that we would ever do that with our children, but it happens. But just to be clear, Jesus isn't saying that God is like this unjust judge, it's just that Listen even if an unjust awful man like this will eventually hear cries for justice how much more will god hear his beloved children who long for his return god knows the time when all things will be made new so we we trust in him don't worry about the how and the when just trust so they looked at the world around them much like we look at the world around us today and just wonder where are we headed They looked around the world and longed for justice. God's people were despised, often living in despair. And Jesus reminds them, be persistent. Don't give up because God hears your cries for justice and for vindication. And he hears yours as well. And at the base of this parable is an attitude about facing injustice as believers. Because our call is not to strike back in kind, but to turn to God and rest in the promise that he has made to vindicate us. Jesus concludes this lesson with a question about his return. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? See, disciples, we're supposed to live looking for the hope of Christ's return. And that, that return is coming... And it will be sudden, and we need to be ready. But in the meantime, we're called to live lives of humility, devoting ourselves fully and completely to God, because his disciples trust everything to the Father. Then there's another parable. And the second parable uh, that we find in Luke 18 looks as though it's describing a religious occasion, but it too kind of turns out to be another lawsuit, or maybe we should say the, the Pharisee in the temple has turned it into a, a contest. Uh, his prayer that we'll read about is, consists simply of, uh, you know, telling God about his own good points, and he ends up exalting himself by the simple convenience of denouncing the tax collector. And so if we are faithful and not to give up, if Jesus is to find faith when he returns... This parable causes us to ask the question, well, who does God listen to? Or who is really righteous in God's sight? Continuing on in verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, clearly he was just talking to the Pharisees, you can disregard any of the following. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me. A sinner. Now, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And I, I get it. I'm sure none of us here would describe our attitude toward God like that of the Pharisee in the story, but the assumption remains that on some level, we believe that God's ultimate approval of us is based on on our obedience and good deeds. Now, if you were to tell this story to a Muslim or a Buddhist friend or, or most any world religion without any context, it's likely they would consider the Pharisee to be the hero of the story. He should be the one to go uh, become justified before God because he is doing all the right things. No one likes to have their lives laid bare. No one. So... Can we be honest for a minute? Maybe just at least with yourself. And maybe we can admit that we sometimes fall into the trap of the Pharisee's mindset. I mean, maybe it wasn't a prayer up front in front of others. But maybe you've thought or or said something like, oh, look at that train wreck. Thank God I'm not like them. Thank God I'm not like that bum or that menace to society, that druggie, that... Fill in the blank with your favorite stereotype. Have you ever said to your children, now look at them, you need to study hard and work hard so you don't end up like them. Thank you, God, that I'm not an adulterer, a drunk, or a sinner. Have you looked down upon someone because of their failure to meet your expectations of doing right? I'm the tax collector in in. Jews' eyes would have been a thief, a traitor to God and his fellow man. He was despised. He was just repugnant. So who is it that you look at and it just makes your stomach turn? Jesus isn't even being a little bit discreet here. He's asking you, have you considered that the them you're talking about is more righteous in God's sight than you? See, they recognize their need for someone else's goodness and grace. They recognize their need, uh, their sin, and they cry out to God, have mercy on me, a sinner, instead of relying on their own goodness. If you're here and you're not a believer, and you find that there are so many religious people that are intolerably proud and judgmental, it's because of this. Their system of Justification by good works means that what really counts in the world is how hard you work and how well you perform. Whenever we as Christians create our own rules beyond God's word and judge people or other Christians who don't follow those, we are the Pharisee. On the other hand, the extreme opposite is also true. Whenever we feel like, well, God couldn't love me, I can't, even, I can't talk to God because I have sinned, I have failed, I, I'm not worthy, I can't, I can't do it. We also have adopted that same approach, that God looks at us based on our good deeds, or lack thereof. But it turns out that the attitude that honors God is when we look at ourselves in light of who he is, not through the distortion that comes from comparing ourselves with others. And it seems that more often the attitude of the Pharisee is the rule of the day, And it's an unfortunate thing because people are awful judges of character. I mean, how often does the nice-looking smooth talker turn out to be a moral snake while the simple person is full of integrity? And so we find again Jesus is speaking to two groups, a group that recognized their humble state, the oppressed, the poor, the, the ones who needed him. And then this other group's the other group that thinks they're hashtag blessed if they live right. Both fall into the same temptation to see this blessed life as connected to their behaviors. And it's funny, and I I probably said this before, but it's funny how Christians talk about being blessed, and almost always it relates to good things or good uh, experiences, but most often related to finances. No one says, oh, I've been so blessed to downsize my car. In my house, nobody says they're blessed when they lose a job or have heartbreaking news come from a doctor. And it's hard to ask the question when it hasn't, when if you haven't experienced it. But if if you were to lose everything—your health, your career, your accrued wealth—would you still be able to say that God is good and I am blessed? You're honest answer will reveal very much about your heart. I remember almost uh, 14 years ago to the day when uh, my wife lost her job. Did I think we were blessed? Uh, No. I felt like she was the victim of local politics and I was all kinds of angry. But now, on this side of it, I look back and I see that we were very blessed. We were blessed with a group of people who, who loved us, and we, albeit painfully, learned how to humble ourselves to receive from others. We were blessed to gain a better understanding of uh, an appreciation for, I guess, budgeting and being good stewards with what you had. And we, we were blessed because, honestly, if it weren't for that job loss, we might have not have had the opportunity a few years later uh, to welcome a wonderful young lady into our home. And wouldn't have had the joy of watching her grow into a mature young woman destined to be a kingdom builder wherever she lands. I remember a number of years ago walking into a hospital room uh, with Kimball and Julie, Jesse, as they were beginning to come to grips with Kimball's cancer diagnosis. As a minister, they don't train you for this, Uh, they don't tell you what to say in these circumstances. Part of me standing there wanted to cry. Part of me uh, wanted to have something profound to say. But I was not, however, prepared for what Kimball told me. He said, Rodney, you know, if through all these treatments and appointments, if I can just point one person to Jesus through my witness, it will have been worth it. See, Kimball was blessed. And he wanted to be a blessing until his last breath. And it had absolutely nothing to do with what he had and everything to do with who gave him hope. Jesus is destroying the fundamental principle of almost every religion. The pride, the self-exaltation that would dare hold up our own goodness as a reason for God's love. It will lead to a terrible humbling. But Jesus said those who humble themselves will be exalted. May we not be so consumed with the signs of the times that we miss the opportunities to be about the building of God's kingdom here on this earth while we patiently await Christ's return. May we approach the throne of God in the confidence only of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And may we plead and beg with God alongside Jesus that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth just as it is in heaven. And may we do so sitting next to the least of these, the downtrodden, the judged, those who recognize that no one is good enough for God, but cry out to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Take heart in what we know, that he has already poured out his mercy beyond what you could ever hope for or imagine. I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul's words from Romans 5. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified and since we've been made right through faith, said this, if you want to see where this final vindication is anticipated in the present world, look for where there is genuine repentance and humility, a genuine casting of oneself on the mercies of God, because Jesus' words, this one, went home vindicated. Those are among the most comforting words in the entire gospel. Let's pray. Lord, I pray today that you would have mercy on us. I, I pray that we would repent where we have thought ourselves more highly than we ought. Or we've avoided you because we felt you couldn't love us. Or that we had failed you so much that we were too far gone. Father, forgive us when we've placed our trust and our confidence in our wealth, in our position, or our power. For when we've placed our confidence and our trust anywhere but completely in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, have mercy on us. May we long for your return. May we be patient until your plan runs its course And we can join you for all eternity. But Lord, may we never forget that we are the them that we look at, that we look down our noses at. That, But for your grace and your goodness, I have nothing. So, Father, today may you be at work in our hearts that we would surrender everything to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name.